0: to Beyond the Paper. My name is Danielle Tonkin and today I'm interviewing Hazel Jenkins. Welcome Hazel. Thank you. Today we're going to be discussing your paper about imaging for low back pain. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Awesome. I've read your paper. It's very informative. Um, Could you possibly give us a brief overview of
1: what it is and what it's about? Yeah, of course. Um, So The paper is a systematic review and what we wanted to do was look at imaging for low back pain and specifically whether the um, use of imaging in clinical practice was consistent with guidelines or not. Um, So we were looking for papers that assessed for whether or not the imaging that was performed by different types of practitioners uh, was in line with guideline um, adherent behaviour um, and so we performed this systematic review and meta-analysis. Um, we ended up with 33 papers that were included um, within the review. Um, and we did a meta-analysis, um, a number of different, different meta-analyses, um, because we did find that there were uh, different criteria that the papers use to assess for imaging appropriateness. And so we needed to do um, different meta-analyses to summarize each of those. So this um, type of analysis is where you compile a bunch of papers
0: and read all of them over and then basically report in a single paper those accumulative
1: findings. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So yeah, we reported on, as I said, 33 different papers. And the actual meta-analysis um, is a statistical analysis where we can actually take the results from each of the individual papers and um, effectively put them together and perform statistical analysis on them together so we can pool all the results and so we can try and get a bit of a summary of what all the papers are saying um, overall. How difficult was it for you to get that type of information that you needed to complete your own study? Because
0: reading your paper, you started out with over 6,000 results Mm
1: -hmm. in your initial search. How how difficult was that to to narrow that down. Yeah. Um, So I don't know if it's difficult, just time consuming. (laughs) Um, So we started with, um, you know, it's a targeted search strategy, but we want to keep it broad enough to make sure that we don't miss any of the papers. And so we do end up getting a lot back from the different databases. Um, So then the process was that we had um, two of the authors actually going through the titles and then actually reading the abstracts to see if we thought that that particular paper would meet the inclusion criteria for our study or not. Um, And then we just kept Um, drilling them down until we came up with the 33 that were finally included. And that was after we'd read through the entire full text of those papers to make sure that they uh, definitely met the inclusion criteria for our study.
0: So I guess this is a a two-part question of, one, why would you use title as one of your initial um, criteria to to cut down on on the papers that you would review? And two, was the title and the abstract done together as a as a cumulative review or was it title and then abstract? I'm just trying to understand, I guess, how it chops and changes. Like, is it a kind of a, an assembly line type of process where you, you look at one and then anything that feeds in from that one, then you look at the next?
1: Yeah, and yeah, so on? yeah, very much like the assembly line. Um, because we did return 6,000 results, yeah. um, we used the title screen to remove anything that was clearly completely unrelated to our study. So we actually only had one author do the um, title screens. And um, when you put in your search strategy, you'll put in lots of words for imaging. So that could include x-ray, CT, MRI. If you put in the word x-ray, you'll often get a lot of things to do with x-rays completely unrelated to um, clinical use or the low back. Um, uh, they could be related to lots of other other things. And so you get a lot of titles which are just clearly very much unrelated to the topic at hand at all. Um, So that initial title screen was just to remove anything that was very obviously out of left field and something we weren't interested in. So we didn't have to read the abstracts for all of those. Um, If we had any doubt of it, we would keep it um, so that we could then move into the abstract screening and and do a little bit uh, more reading on that. Um, So when it came to the abstract screening, then we um, had two people doing that. Um, So we each independently read the abstracts and then compared our results. Um, Again, if we were in doubt, we kept it in. um, And then we made sure that we had the same list as each other. If there was any discrepancy between us, we would discuss it and come to a conclusion. If necessary, we'd get a third author involved just to say, hey, what do you think? Do you think this meets inclusion? A tiebreaker. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) tiebreaker. And um, then... Um, so then after abstract screening, you go to the full-text screening where you read the entire paper. And so, yeah, clearly you that don't... That would have been the fun part. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. It's the interesting part. Um, and sometimes you can you can rule them out quite quickly. Um, other ones, yeah, you would have to read the whole paper in depth just to make sure it definitely ticks the right boxes. Was there anything that you
0: ended up, I guess, begrudgingly having to cut out? Was there anything that you wished that you could have kept in or that you're like, oh, this is really good, but it's just not enough of what we need?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, and there's always uh, sort of difficult decisions you have to make. At the start of any systematic review, you've got to very clearly outline what it is that you want. You have your, your set inclusion criteria Um, and so that will include um, things like the the study design that you think is important um, that you look at, um, the actual population or participants that need to be included within the study, the type of outcome measures that they need to report on because that's where you're going to draw your results from. So you need to have that all quite clearly defined and yes, sometimes you'd have papers which tick nearly all the boxes and just miss out one and you're thinking it's a great paper but they just don't have that detail I need. Mm -hmm. That'd be so frustrating. Yeah, it can be. Uh, sometimes you can, um, depending on what details is missing, um, you can contact the authors of the original paper and see if they do have that detail and they just didn't put it in. Um, but sometimes it's just clearly that they just did it differently and it's not something that you can actually include in the study. Fair enough. A oh, good question that I had
0: for you is, I mean, it's probably a, a frequently asked question, but... Why is it specifically low back pain is is the target? Did it have to be specific of an area of the body or did, was that like a choice that you made and, and why
1: low back pain? Mm-hmm. Um, so the topic that we did is, is our choice and we chose to limit it down to low back pain. Um, so low back pain is an area that um, imaging overuse is, is well recognised in. Um, it's an area of concern um, to the public health systems, um, a lot of money is spent on imaging for low back pain and it doesn't seem to actually translate to any better outcomes for the patients. Um, So it's an area um, that's quite heavily been looked in to at the moment. Um, it's also my area for my PhD. So this is one of my, my papers for my PhD. So that's <laughs> the other reason we were really focusing in on, on low back pain for that one. That goes into um, my question of why is the study important to you? Yep. And there you go. <laughs> that was the research for
0: your PhD. That's wonderful.
1: Yes. Yeah. And it really fit in with what um, we were doing, which... So my whole PhD topic is looking at the overutilization of imaging for low back pain and okay. trying to reduce that use. Um, and... We, you know, as I said, it's quite well recognised that it is overused, um, and we've got lots of papers which show what percentage of imaging um, is being used in primary care. Um, and in fact, we actually did another systematic review um, at the same time as this one, which was just on what is the um, uh, prevalence of imaging for low back pain. Um, but when we were doing that particular paper, which was led by Aaron Downey, um, it it's occurred to me in relation to my PhD work that we don't want to just know what prevalence, what the prevalence or the percentage of imaging use is, um, but actually whether it is appropriate or inappropriate because you know we might say that the um, 20% of patients with low back pain get imaged, but maybe all of those 20% actually do meet guidelines, in which case that would be appropriate use, um, even if it sounds a bit high. Um, so that was really why we wanted to do this paper to actually say, okay, if we look at the guidelines for whether to take imaging or not, how well a practitioner is actually conforming to those guidelines and what percentage of the imaging that's being taken is actually um, not conforming to those guidelines and so therefore inappropriate.
0: So where, what are these guidelines? Like where did these come from? Is this an Australia thing or is this a
1: worldwide thing? Like where are we basing this off of, if you don't mind? Yeah. Yep. So there are lots of different guidelines for um, the manage- management of low back pain, which generally include then when to use imaging or not. That's probably a problem um, in itself, isn't there? Yeah. If it's multiple different guidelines, yes. you're kind of
0: like, which one do I follow? Which one's the best one?
1: Yep. Absolutely. Then there are quite a few. Um, the first ones were released around about 1994. Um, and uh, AH AHCPR, which I can't think right now what that stands for, Um, but they're American guidelines basically. Since then, basically every country have their own. They're all relatively similar though. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also guidelines for the medical community. There's guidelines for the chiropractic profession as well. Um, Again, though, they are relatively similar. So the main message is across all of them are the same, that imaging shouldn't be used in most cases of low back pain, um, particularly any back pain that's considered non-specific, which is, means we, we don't really know what's causing it. Um, imaging can be useful in a small percentage, which might be where you suspect um, serious pathology or fracture um, as an underlying cause, and you really use the imaging to rule that in or out. But for the majority of patients who don't have that serious um, suspicion of serious disease. Imaging really doesn't um, appear to be helpful at all in the management of those patients. And so all the guidelines basically say that. Um, they can have slightly different criteria for um, how to uh, identify which patients are more likely to have serious serious diseases. So there can be little bits of differences there. While reading your paper,
0: I saw a lot of low quality comments in there um, about the studies that you reviewed and in your main finding statement actually said this review found low to moderate quality evidence that both inappropriate overuse and underuse of imaging occur in the management of low back pain. Is that kind of the reason? I mean I know that all, not all evidence can be pristine and immaculate quality, but it seems to it, it seems difficult to make such a st- strong statement or to try and I guess raise concern when all you have is quote-unquote low quality mm-hmm. uh, evidence to go off of.
1: Yeah. yeah and it is difficult absolutely and as I said with a review we can only go with the evidence that we have. And what does um, that mean specifically? What, what does
0: low quality yep. quantify as? Yep. I'm, I'm a little confused as to how you can How do is it a scale? Is it another checkbox list? How does that work?
1: (laughs) It's a bit of a scale. So um, basically, we did what's known as a grade analysis as part of so for the studies that were involved in the meta-analysis, where we summed up all the the data together. um, We did a grade analysis of those to determine what uh, level quality of evidence we had within that. So in other words, how much can we trust those results? Um, and so if we're saying that it's got low quality evidence, basically that means that if um, we, we can't, we've got this result, but we can't trust it 100%. And if there's a fair likelihood that other studies could potentially give conflicting evidence that might change the results of this, um, because they were low quality studies that were included. Um, It's possible that there's enough bias within those that other better quality studies might have differing results, that makes sense. Um, So, I mean, we've still got the conclusion that we have, but we just have to temper it with this is low quality evidence. And so um, yeah, we we just can't trust it completely. But there is quite a bit of evidence in that, and it's all relatively consistent. So... um, Look, it's, it's probably as believable as we can get at this
0: point in time. <laughs> yeah, no, fair yeah. enough. I just, it's kind of like, should we be taking these with a grain of salt? I mean, ultimately, your conclusion did say we need more evidence, yes. we need more research around this yep. to to quantify that. But kind of, where should we, where should we feel about this? I mean, I kind of, I guess that leads me to a clear question of if you could get one clear message across to. To practitioners, the general public, people listening, um, that what you've
1: identified from the study, what would that be? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'd so say the biggest message is that there is definitely um, lack of consistency between the decisions that practitioners are making and what the guidelines say. Um, we definitely showed that. And uh, the paper did really highlight the concern that um, we are overusing using imaging um, because in actual fact, if the red flags are too sensitive, that means we're actually not capturing as much of that overuse as we potentially could. Um, So when we said a third of imaging is overused, um, it's actually probably higher than that if the red flags were more specific to the people that we wanted, if that makes sense. Um, So yeah, that that is definitely a concern. Um, The underuse of imaging may be a concern, but we're not as certain about that because it could be more reflective of just the red flag criteria and the fact that they were just too general. Uh, might be why that was coming up as an issue. Um, but it's certainly something we want more evidence on and to look into further because if there is underuse occurring in the patients who really need it, we need to know about that because they're, they're the people who need prompt diagnosis and need to be potentially sent off for further investigations or further treatment um, to treat things like cancer or infection, which are you know potentially life-threatening. Um, so we really do need to know if those people are being missed. Um, and so we quite possibly need to look further into the actual guidelines that are being used and the particular criteria that are being used to see if we can find something better that will that practitioners can follow more easily and that um, will allow us to really pick up those patients who need the imaging and not have to image all these other people who don't need it um, just to get them. Absolutely. And my final question is, as a patient, how should I act? What can I
0: do to help myself in this scenario? When I go to see my my doctor or my chiro or physio or osteo, what, what am I going to do to
1: make sure that I can help them and they help me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think it's, I mean, it's very, very important, obviously, to listen to your practitioner, um, but also to ask them some questions. Um, practitioners are often quite time poor um, and so sometimes can... Um, Uh, not be brushing it off, but just sort of be moving down one track and that can happen quite quickly and you may not realise why. Uh, Sometimes practitioners get the impression that you might want imaging and they might just sort of head down that track for that reason as well. Um, So I think it's important for patients to be aware of some of the, um, the tests or treatments that don't have much evidence behind them and um, therefore be able to ask their practitioner a few more questions about, you know, exactly why are you prescribing this for me or why do you think I need that? What do you think it will find? Is this going to change the way um, I'm treated? Um, absolutely. Hold them of, accountable. Yeah, absolutely. And That's there's good. there's a good, um, uh, there's a push for the sort of more um, patient-centred care and for patients to be able to ask more questions about it. Um, it's called Choosing Wisely and it's uh, sort of, uh, it's fairly global now. It started in America. We certainly have it in Australia as well. Um, and it's actually a website that patients can go to and it will um, highlight the, um, the tests or treatments that have been shown to be particularly low value um, that, you know, can have really good value sometimes, but often are used when they, they're not particularly useful. Um, just so patients are aware and just, show, you know, give patients questions they can ask about that, which is really useful.
0: That's great. That definitely puts power back into our own hands mm. and helps us be more aware and more knowledgeable about our own treatment. Thank you so much, Hazel. Again, my name is Danielle. You've been listening to Be on the Paper, and that is all for today. Have a great day, guys.